My text for the sermon this morning is Isaiah 50, and in that uh, text, it, it's like, part of it at least, is like Jesus talking to us um, personally, and he said, he also talked, he's talking about himself, who he is and what, he's, what he does, and, uh, but he says that he needs instruction for his, from his father morning by morning, <laughs> And I'm thinking if Jesus needed um, his father day after day in uninterrupted communion, uh, we we certainly do, don't we? We need our need Jesus, our Heavenly Father, every day. I have a story for the children. Had encouragement from a a. Um, Sunday school committee member to have something for the children most every service. So this this uh, story is a children's story. Uh, one way to look at one way to children to look at the death of Jesus is that he he took our place. He took our punishment. Now, the truth is, even if we would have received the punishment he did, it wouldn't have saved our soul. But Jesus did take our place in uh, bearing our sin, and he was punished um, um, and suffered greatly to provide for our forgiveness. So this, this story is kind of a picture of that. Years ago, there was a little one-room schoolhouse in the mountains of Virginia, right here close to home. I don't know if this story is factual or not, but we'll... Um, anyway, it was based in the mountains of Virginia where the boys were so rough that no teacher had been able to handle them. A young, inexperienced teacher applied for the job, and the old director scanned him and asked, Young man, do you know that you're asking for an awful beating? Every teacher that we have had for years has had to take one. I will risk it, said the young man. The first day of school came, and the teacher appeared for duty. One big fellow named Tom whispered, I won't need any help with this one. I can lick him myself. The teacher said, Good morning, boys. We have come to conduct school. They yelled and make fun, made fun of him at the top of their voices. Now I want a good school, but I confess I don't know how unless you help me. Suppose you, suppose we have a few rules. Tell me, and I'll write them on the blackboard. One fellow yelled, no stealing. Another yelled, on time. And finally, there were ten rules on the blackboard. Now, said the teacher, the law is not good unless there is a penalty attached. What shall we do to the one who breaks the rules? Beat him across the back ten times without his coat on, came the response from the class. That's pretty severe, boys. Are you sure that you're ready to stand by it? Another yelled, I second the motion. And the teacher said, all right, we will live by that rule. Class, come to order. In a day or so, Big Tom found out that his, his lunch had been stolen the thief was located, a little hungry boy about 10 years old. We have found the thief, and he must be punished according to the rule. Ten stripes across the back. Jim, 
come up here, please, the teacher said. The little fellow came trembling, slowly, with a big coat fastened up to his neck and pleaded, Teacher, you can leak me as hard as you like, but please don't make me take my coat off. Take your coat off, the teacher said. You help make the rules. Oh, teacher, don't make me. He began to unbutton his coat. And what did the teacher see? The boy had no shirt on and revealed a bony little crippled body. How can I whip this child, the teacher thought. But I must. I must do something if I'm to keep this school. Everything was quiet as death. How come aren't you wearing a shirt, Jim? He replied, my father died and my mother is very poor. I have only one shirt and she's washing it today. I wore my brother's big coat to keep me warm. The teacher, with rod in hand, hesitated, and then Big Tom jumped to his feet and said, Teacher, if you don't object, I will take Jim's licking for him. Very well. There is a certain law that one can be become a substitute for another. Are you all agreed? Off came Tom's coat, and after five strokes, the rod broke. The teacher bowed his head and his hands and thought, how can I finish this awful task? Then he heard the class sobbing, and what did he see? Little Jim had reached up and caught Tom with both arms around his neck. Tom, I'm so, so sorry I stole your lunch, but I was awful hungry. Tom, I would love you till I, I will love you till I die for taking the licking for me. Yes, I will love you forever. To lift a phrase from this simple story, Jesus, my Redeemer, has taken my licking for me and yours for you. Prophet Isaiah declared, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Jesus took our place. He took our punishment so that our sins can be forgiven. Uh, let's sing. Robbie, would you lead uh, Jesus Loves Me, Please? Me, this I for the... titled the sermon, Jesus on his way to Jerusalem to drink the bitter cup. And uh, the text is Isaiah 50. I'll read that in just a bit. But first I'll refer to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Bible scholars uh, divide the Gospel of Luke in three sections. And the middle section, which starts at Luke 9.51, is called the Journey to Jerusalem, or some call it the Travel Narrative. And it begins with this verse, 
As the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, he resolutely set out to Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus knew that the bitter cup of suffering was waiting for him in Jerusalem. He did not run from it. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. So he began the journey to Jerusalem. And it, it wasn't just a straight line journey where he went directly to Jerusalem. It was, uh, I tried to find out how long it would have been. It might have been a few weeks until he arrived in Jerusalem, but he was on the way. So he began his journey. On the way, he had work to do. He had, he had compassion to share. He had woes to pronounce on the Pharisees. He had teaching to do. He had 20 parables to tell. And that's in the Gospel of Luke on this journey to Jerusalem. He, he gave a lot of teaching. And he showed his love to the sinners and the outcasts and the Samaritans. He, he traveled by some of the villages of the Samaritans. He was on his way to Jerusalem to drink his bitter cup. And here's some verses in that, in that section of Luke 13.22. So it starts out saying, the journey starts out saying, As the time approached for Jesus to be taken to heaven, he resolutely set out to Jerusalem. Uh, in chapter 13, Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. 17, verse 11. On his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border of Samaria and Galilee. As he was going to into a village, he met ten men who had leprosy. They called loudly to him, and he healed them. And you know the story there of how only one returned to give him thanks. But Jesus was marching to Jerusalem, not in a straight line, but he was headed for Jerusalem. Along the way, he was healing, he was showing compassion, he was teaching, and especially to the outcasts. 1831, Jesus took the twelve aside and said, We're going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him, and they will flog him, and they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. And the disciples were bewildered at Jesus' words. They didn't understand what he was talking about. Now Jesus was near Jerusalem, uh, chapter 19, 28. Jesus went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As they approached the city, he sent two disciples to fetch a donkey colt so that he could ride uh, the colt into Jerusalem as the crowd shouted hosannas. As he crested the hill uh, that over, I understand there's a beautiful view of Jerusalem at, at, at the crest of a hill, he stopped and wept over the city said, I would have gathered you as a mother hen does her chicks, but you would not. And then Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, and within one week, he would drink his bitter cup of suffering and of death. Jesus had just said, everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man must be fulfilled. And so let's examine from the prophet Isaiah, some of the prophecy. 
Isaiah 50. And this, um, this chapter in Isaiah is one of the four, or is it five, suffering servant songs in Isaiah's book. It's a soliloquy. I had to look up to see what a soliloquy is. Soliloquy is. I think I remember Mark Twain wrote uh, in, uh, oh, why am I saying this? What is the book? Uh, Huckleberry Finn. I think the king had a soliloquy or the duke. I don't remember. But anyway, I had to look up what it meant. Forgive the distraction there. Jesus, this is a soliloquy where Jesus, the suffering servant, is giving a description of himself. And it's a beautiful description of Jesus, of our suffering servant Savior. Let's read uh, Isaiah 50. This is what the Lord says. Uh, The first three verses are God, the Father speaking, the, the Lord could have been in conjunction with Jesus. First, first three verses are the Lord. Four to the end of the chapter then are the suffering servants speaking, Jesus himself. This is what the Lord says. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I send her away? Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? Because, you're, because of your sins you were sold. Because of your transgression, your mother was sent away. When I came, when I came, why was there no one? When I called, why was there no one to answer? Was my arm too short to deliver you? Do I lack strength to rescue you? By mere rebuke, I dry up the sea. I turn rivers into desert. Their fish rot for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with darkness and I make sackcloth its covering. And now these next words would be like the words of Jesus, our suffering Savior. The sovereign Lord has given me well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He awakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the Sovereign Lord helped me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint and know that I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charge against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let the one who walks in darkness, who has no light, Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on their God. But now all of you who light fires and provide for yourselves flaming torches, go walk in the light of your fire and the torches you set ablaze. 
This is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. Well, in these first verses of Isaiah 50, the Lord is talking about Judah. Uh, God had said at one place that he had divorced Israel, but he, he did not divorce Judah. So he's describing Judah, who was, was going, not quite sure the, t- the time frame here, but they were either had already been de- destroyed by Babylon or were about to be destroyed by Babylon because of their sins. And uh, so some, had been, some were taken into exile, and they were separated from God in that way. But here, here God asked, so he's talking to Judah. He's also talking to every person, every sinner. You and I are sinners, just like other people of Judah are. So he's talking to us, and he's, but he's encouraging us that we're candidates of grace. Listen to the question God asks. Where is your mother's divorce, divorce certificate which I sent her away, with which I sent her away? Did I sell her as a slave to her creditors? And the, and the answer to those questions is that there was no divorce certificate and there had been no sale of slaves. Babylon had, had comp- captured Judah, but they paid, they paid God nothing for that. So th- these verses are saying that the Israelites were separated from God and put into captivity because of their sin. Here it says, because of their transgressions, your mother sent you away. So they had caused their own separation, not God. But there was hope for restoration and redemption. There was, it was not a final divorce. It was not a final selling of a slave. There was hope for return, and there was hope for redemption. Verse 2, beautiful verse. All along, God had given Judah opportunity to repent and to avoid the judgment of Babylon destroying them. So God asked them more questions. He said, when I, when I came, and it, it is amazing that God comes. God comes again and again to the sinner. When I came, why was there no one? Why didn't anyone answer when I called? God had come, come to Judah time and again, uh, prophet after prophet, message of the prophets, calling them to repent, rebuking them, pointing out their sin, calling for repentance. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, you can be white as snow. So God comes and God calls. Our only, only compassionate God would come again and again. But no one was listening. No one was answering. No one was repenting. And their sins uh, brought, they, they brought their punishment on themselves. Their sins brought on the judgment, the punishment, and the separation. And God asked them more questions. Was my arm too short to deliver you? Do I lack strength to rescue you? And the answer to those questions is, of course God's arm is strong enough to save them. Of course God had the strength to save them. But they weren't listening. They weren't answering. 
They weren't repenting. They kept right on sinning. So God couldn't save them because they wouldn't be saved. And then the last part of verse 2 and verse 3, God proves that he is powerful. He said, by mere rebuke, I dry up the sea. I turn rivers into desert. Their fish lack for water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with darkness and make sackcloth heaven's covering. God is showing that he is powerful, and the power that's described in these verses is his powerful judgment. To drive the sea, fish dying, the heavens darkened. But God can also do the opposite. God is powerful to save, redeem, and restore. He can make the desert come to life. He can make streams flow in the desert. He can fill the sea and river with water and make it teeming with fish. He is powerful to bring light light into darkness. God is powerful. He is able to save. He is able to rescue. Just a chapter or two later, Isaiah wrote, The Lord will bear his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of of our God. So there's still hope for sinful Judah who was separated from God, and there is still hope for you and for me. The hope is Jesus Christ, the suffering Savior. Now listen to him and what he says to us in the next verses. Verse 4. The sovereign Lord has given me... Sorry, verse 4. The sovereign Lord has given me well-instructed tongue to know... to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen to one being instructed. So Jesus is, was, is well instructed by God, and he's able to give the fitting, kindly word to the weary. We, we hear him say that in the Gospels. He said, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy-hardened, and I will give you rest. Learn of me. I am meek and lowly in heart. The prophet also wrote, A bruised reed, reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not snuff out. Jesus' words console and comfort and edify. And do you remember that I said that Jesus resolute to go to Jerusalem. It was like the cross was hanging over his head, and yet he was—he had words of comfort, and he had words of curry, uh, con- consoling and helping the weary, those that were weary. Amazing. The cross was heavy on his mind. Surely it must have been heavy on his mind, but he stopped at village after village teaching his power his parables, healing and giving kindly. He was gentle and kind as he ministered to the weary outcasts. Jesus knows just the right word for the weary one. How is it that Jesus has the the right word for the weary? Verse 4, he said, says, the sovereign Lord instructed me. 
Morning after morning, he wakens my ear to listen to instruction. And we remember that Jesus said in the Gospels, things like this, The Son can do nothing of himself. He only does what he sees the Father do. I can only speak what I hear from my Father. Jesus is one who eagerly listened to his Father. Attentively he listened. Morning after morning he listened, and the idea is there, it was an uninterrupted communion with his heavenly Father, listening to the word of the Father. And because of that, and also because of who he was himself, he was able to give the fitting word of comfort and instruction to ones who are weary. I'll say again, if Jesus needed... His Heavenly Father, morning by morning, all the time. How much more do we? How much more do we need him if we're going to speak words of comfort to the weary ones on our pathway? And then our suffering Savior says in verses 5 and 6, The Sovereign Lord opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from the mocking and spitting. I set my face like flint. To Jesus set his face like flint to carry out his mission, go to Jerusalem and drink the bitter cup. All of Judah were sinners, all of us are sinners, and here is our hope. And Jesus Christ, who suffered for us, shed his blood for us, gave his life for us so that our sins can be forgiven, so we can be redeemed, so that our desert desert experience can be turned into life, and so that our darkness become light. Jesus didn't shrink back from what he knew he was was coming. He didn't call for 12 legions of angels. He said to his father, not my will, but thine be done. He was willing to drink the bitter cup so that that Israel could be saved. He was willing to drink the bitter cup so that you and I can be saved. And what a bitter cup it was. What what is described here is what happened at the Sanhedrin trial and at Pilate's judgment hall. The beating of the back, the the cheeks uh, who had the the beard pulled out, the mocking and the spitting. Some of that happened before the Sanhedrin. It, it may be that the plucking of the beard was uh, by the the Jewish council. Actually, I don't think the Gospels even record the plucking of the beard, but it's prophesied here. But uh, that was a Jewish thing, a very degrading grading. To, Pluck out the beard. Painful too, I suppose. And they mocked him and spit on him. The Jews did in the council. And and the Jewish council, that surely would have been just malice and the hateful abhorrence they felt towards Jesus. And then spineless Pilate ordered the flogging. Maybe to the soldier it was more, more of sport but it was exceedingly cruel. I I read a description of 
the floggings, the Roman floggings. And I'm going to spare you of the horror of reading that. I mean, the horror of what I read. But uh, we'll say what was described was a gruesome horror. Knowing all this, Jesus set his face like flint to go Jerusalem, to Jerusalem and drink the bitter cup. Resolute. This is our Lord. Resolute, courageous, motivated by his love for his Father. He was intent on doing the Father's will. Motivated by love for us, each one of us too. Jesus strode on toward Jerusalem, pausing at the village, villages to give a kindly word to the weary and worn. What compassion, what resolve, what courage, what commitment to the mission. And there was another motiva- uh, motivation that compelled Jesus on to Jerusalem. He knew he would be vindicated. These are from verses 6, 7, and 8. Because the sovereign God helps me, I will not be disgraced. I know that I will not be put to shame. They tried to shame him. They thought they were shaming him, but he could not be put to shame. Verse 8. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Jesus is calling out his accusers. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who will condemn me? They will wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. Jesus was treated shamefully. His accusers meant it to be a disgrace. They falsely accused him of many things. They declared him to be a blasphemer. His accusers had their short hour of power and fame but they wasted away like a a moth-eaten rag. Jesus was proved righteous and sinless. He has been lifted to the place of highest honor. He was justified. He was vindicated. The resurrection proves that Jesus was vindicated and justified. God was pleased with the righteous one who suffered and died. And this, this God's spirit raised him from the dead. The Bible says he was raised for our, justifica- for our justification. So it wasn't just a personal vindication, a personal justification, but he's able to justify all those who believe on him. Romans eight thirty one to 34. Who shall bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one, Christ Jesus who died and was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? And he goes on to say that nothing and no one is able to separate us from the love of God. Jesus was vindicated. He was justified, proven righteous. He was a sinless sacrifice. And then... The amazing thing is that we who believe on Jesus Christ have repented of our sins, reached out to Jesus in faith, are justified in him. We are made right with God. Our sins are taken away. We can live in the presence of a holy God and we can go to a holy heaven 
when we die. Then Jesus asks us a direct question here in the last part of this uh, reading. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let the one who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on their God. Jesus asks us the question, do I, do you fear the Lord attentively, eagerly listening and obeying the word of the suffering Savior? Is that your testimony this morning? Is that my testimony? I, I say, yes, it is. God help me. And then we have the instruction, the promise, trust in the name of the Lord, this, this almighty sovereign God who is powerful, able to re redeem. He laid bare his, his holy arm and provided the wonderful salvation. Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on God, and he will give you light to walk in the darkness. We do live in a dark world, but Jesus will give us an inner light his light that will make a pathway forward for us in, in a dark world. The last verse here is sober, sobering. Judah had done this so many times. Jesus says, all of you who light fires and provide for yourselves flaming torches, go walk in the light of your fires and the torches you have set ablaze. That is what you will receive from my hand. You will lie in torment. If, if anyone chooses to light their own fire, make their own torch, take their own way, they, they will end in destruction. But the offer is, the hope is, the truth is that we can, we can be forgiven, we can be justified in Christ. In summary, Jesus was willing to drink the bitter cup. He set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. He was willing to do the Father's will. Along the way, and always, he shares his fitting and kindly word with the weary. He did give his back for beating, his cheek for plucking, and his face for mocking and spitting. He didn't turn his face away. It was set like flint to go forward. He didn't turn away. He didn't turn back on, on toward Jerusalem in the bitter cup. He was not shamed. He was not disgraced. They tried to condemn him, but he was vindicated. He was justified. He is the righteous one. And now he justifies all those who repent and believe in him. He is our light in darkness to lead us through life as we trust in his name, his powerful name. What a wonderful, beautiful Savior. Let's worship him in communion.